On the Record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PwC on News Talk. It's not going to be wall to wall. Um, RTE. We will obviously have a little bit of a discussion and Roger Flynn from DCU is going to be with us in a couple of minutes. Um, I say that though as a precursor to the front pages of this morning's newspapers, which are largely speaking, wall-to-wall RTE. Uh, the Business Post is the first one in front of me. RTE is preparing to move against members of its senior management team as soon as tomorrow in a radical bid to restore public confidence. Incoming Director General Kevin Backhurst is going to announce major changes to the organisation, including the way the management is structured and issues around conflicts of interest. Uh, there is a duty to there is a, this is due rather to a deep desire for accountability at the organisation. One senior figure at the National Broadcaster said, "News of the purge, uh, purge is an interesting word. News of the purge comes ahead of Ryan Tuberty's make or break appearances before two Oireachtas committees, with sources suggesting that his chances of returning to the air are at best 50-50. There is also growing concerns in governments." that the controversy could precipitate a major funding crisis in RTE due to potential impact on TV licence revenues and advertisers' interest in the state broadcaster, which is interesting because there are two front pages on that very theme. Uh, The Mail on Sunday tells us that taxpayers will need to bail out RTE. That's the minister's fear, at least, anyway. Um, Government ministers were this weekend discussing how to prepare the public for a taxpayer-funded bailout of besieged state broadcaster. Um, Cabinet sources said last night there was a fear in the government that public attitudes to the broadcaster have descended to such levels that in the words of one minister, there will be a mass boycott of the RTE licence fee. It will be water charges mark two. Ministers are demanding swift and savage action in RTE before the contagion starts spreading in government. Anyone in government who believes that we can somehow benefit from a distraction being provided at RTE when golden circles and elites are being spoken of is very naive, uh, says that source. And just to prove that the funding issues are not now a present-day response to uh, the crisis in RTE of the last fortnight... Uh, the Sunday Independent tells us that Dee Forbes, who of course is now the former Director General, asked the government for a €35 million Euro bailout earlier this year while auditors were investigating her involvement in the secret payments to Ryan Tuberty. Uh, Ms Forbes made a pre-budget submission to the Department of Media on May the 8th, two months after she was made aware of the issue with Ortiz's accounts over the undisclosed payments to the former Late Late Show host, which ultimately of course led her to resign a couple of weeks ago. Ms Forbes submitted her request for funding in the midst of Grant Thornton's inquiry into the €150,000 payment for, quote, consultancy fees from RTE to Ryan Tuberty's agent Noel Kelly through a UK barter account. The former Director General was interviewed by auditors about the payment before they ultimately concluded that consultancy fees did not actually reflect what the transactions were for. But Ms Forbes was seeking €34.5 million of interim funding pending the reform of the TV licence fee, the Department of Media confirmed yesterday. This process, of course... Uh, suspended in the wake of an unprecedented financial and governance crisis uh, at RTE. Uh, And finally for now, the Sunday Times. Uh, The Sunday Times for the last couple of weeks has had quite interesting stories about uh, what's been going on in RTE. Um, Obviously, two weeks ago, they were the first outlet to report some information about how exactly Ryan Tuberty's fees were settled. That was the use of the barter account. Uh, Last week, they claimed that RTE was actually aware of the public underdisclosure um, of some um, salaries at RTE, including that of Ryan Tuberty um, in 2020, something which actually curiously wasn't taken up at Oireachtas Committees last week. Today they're telling us that forensic accountants hired by RTE are now investigating whether Ryan Tuberty received a €100,000 loyalty payment in 2012 as part of a deal that he signed to present his morning radio programme and The Late Late. Uh, the payment was allegedly made on the expiration of a contract at around September 2012, when Ireland was enduring an economic crisis, according to sources familiar with the fiscal inquiry. Orty has refused to say whether Tuberty had received the money as part of his publicly stated salary of 752,950 for that year, 
The broadcaster said yesterday that it could not comment on the issue as contracts for the relevant year were still being reviewed by consultants from Grant Thornton. That's interesting on several fronts because it does mean, by the way, uh, that Grant Thornton might be investigating issues beyond uh, just 2017, which we know is one thing that they are uh, publicly looking at. Anyway, to discuss um, that story and indeed much more in the papers, I am joined in studio uh, by Adrian Sweeney, Director of Paris Court Springs Health Farm and someone whose voice you regularly hear uh, on this station here on News Talk, and uh, John Cunningham, who's Relationship Director with Morgan McKinley, uh, Chair and Country Director for the Lysis Group, and also uh, Chairman of Pre- Goshka, the President's Award. And just on that front, John, before we get into the papers, um, the Goshka Awards were presented on Friday. You were there wearing your hat as Chairman. Uh, obviously, the President was there wearing his hat as President. Um, how is he? Because obviously, we know he's going into hospital this week. Yeah, Friday afternoon, we had the Gold Award presentation take place in North Snook and we had 73 people from uh, the island of Ireland including the north came down to present to get their medals and the president was clearly in some level of discomfort but I have to say he was remarkable and met with the 73 people presented their medals stayed mm. for photographs and engaged in conversation with all of them Still did the full the full day's work The full day's work and they made a reception afterwards and reception Sabina came back um, but again I suppose just on all of our behalf to wish him well and a speedy mm. recovery but uh, he is from the Gashka's perspective, he's a remarkable president and hugely committed to the cause. And I suppose one of the things I was challenged with when I became chair was to increase access uh, for all communities. And the level of diversity uh, on Friday was really quite mm. remarkable. And um, we wish him well. Just when you say, obviously, we know he's going in for a procedure on Tuesday and it's, it's to relieve some back pain that he's been suffering uh, without wanting to get too much into it. Was it visible that he was in a, in a lot of discomfort on I, Friday? I, I would say he would manage it brilliantly well, but he was clearly uncomfortable mm. but uh, and as you know he, he, he does use a use a stick regularly alright yeah. um, but he didn't let it affect anything to do with the event and spending time with the young people he was mm. great uh, So as you say he is undergoing a procedure on Tuesday to try and believe that he will be still fulfilling all of his constitutional duties uh, according to the Oris uh, while spending his time uh, in Galway and uh, at Oris and Uthron uh, I did remark by the way that this would ordinarily be some of the busiest times of the president's calendar as regards reviewing laws and whatnot, but actually the end of term glut of laws that usually come through Leinster House a little lighter this year. I think they're only expecting three or four to be passed uh, when the house is is rising this week. That it won't be a huge glut of bills coming his way uh, for him to review while he is uh, recuperating from that procedure. Um, anyway, uh, as we said, let's get into uh, what's in the papers. And uh, we said we wouldn't go wall to wall on what's in RTE, but it's very difficult, Adrian, to um, avoid it given that it is on the front pages of basically uh, everything. Uh, what jumped out at you from this morning's coverage? Um, well, I mean, I think probably most people um, could normally be suffering from story fatigue with um, a, mm. a, a story on the headlines, in the headlines for this long. But, um, you know, in some respects, this is very different because everybody has a stake in this story. Mm. We all have to pay our TV licence. So, I mean, um, I think the things that jumped out at me is that the information is still coming out. And I know the term drip feed has been used quite a lot. But I suppose... Um, the reason that this whole saga is as drawn out as it is, is that the crisis management wasn't implemented at the very start of this process. And maybe the upper echelons of RTE didn't realise the dam, as Emma O'Kelly put it, the mm. dam was about to burst mm. and, and burst it did. But perhaps it was, you know, necessary for the complete overhaul of RTE, which clearly it seems is needed mm. um, and may not in the end be the worst thing for the public service broadcaster. Yeah. Well, I suppose to see the headlines today and you're kind of there's a bit of rolling your eyes up to heaven with regard to the fact that it seems to be endless but I've certainly formed a view which is now that Grant Thornton are doing a report 
the forensic accountants have gone in and Kevin Backhurst is starting tomorrow. Mm. So I would think let's draw a breath. So, he, so he's going in tomorrow. The Grant Thornton are actually now doing two reports because they're doing the report into Ryan Tuberty's disclosures and they're also doing a report into the toy show. There is now the two pending expert reviews as regards corporate yeah. culture and uh, recruitment issues. There are the two Oroctus committees, both yes. of which are sitting on Tuesday, another of which is sitting on Wednesday and a second of which is sitting on Thursday anyway. Um, like there's, is it kind of nearly death by a thousand inquiries at this well, point? Well, well, I think we won't say death, but certainly trauma by a thousand inquiries. And I mm. think that what I would be saying generally is, and this is to the just draw a breath and step back. Now, I, th- I also think it's it's. it's you think it's going to happen though before well, no, Ryan Tuberty goes in and spends seven hours yeah, in committees we, we, on Thursday. Come, and come, that, that might be a bookend to it for the moment, but I think ultimately all this is happening. So there's all these moving forces taking place at the moment, and even the fact that people are expecting Kevin Backhurst tomorrow to come up with a solution and purge the board to me is just a little bit too early. Give the man a chance, get in, understand all of the issues. I mean, clearly we've seen there's a level of dysfunction and and cultural disaffection within the organisation that needs to be tackled. And they are big things. I think that I'd say give them a, give, give them a chance. Let's get the data, let's get the information and make it make it as, as relevant as possible. They have all the information together. And then as for Ryan and Noel Kelly, I suppose one, and I was saying to, to Adrian, you know, you nearly want to take the day off at this stage with the guard <laughs> the way it's been, it's, it's been hyped up. Mm. And as I've formerly, I've, I've known Noel Kelly for many years and as far as I'm concerned, he's a guy whose only job was to negotiate the best possible deal for his, for his clients and he apparently has done that. And I think that, that hopefully for Monday, that bloodletting piece, the only thing we're missing now is D Forbes at this stage. Yeah. But I hope that maybe after that, okay, this now sounds like it's not going to happen, but it might just lead to a bookend to say, look, let's pull all this yeah. stuff together. Let Kevin Backhurst hopefully come up with the plan because he needs to be brave and bold. Well, what, what they do need, I think, is for there to be no no more new information to come out. And it may be Ryan Tuberty's appearance on Tuesday alongside Noel Kelly will, will be that. But I also think that if there are five or six parallel inquiries going on, one of them is going to come up with something new which will give more fuel to it all. Uh, I've got Roger Flynn from, from DCU on the line, but just, just before I come to that, because you mentioned the role of, of Noel Kelly or what the perceived role of an agent is, I was speaking to somebody else in the media sector this week and they said that the role of an agent actually should be more than just extracting the bottom line highest monetary value, that you also have to look at your client's employability and their general prospects into the medium term as well. And sometimes you can wring them dry too much by asking for too much in any one year because then you run this risk that actually you make them into such a sacred cow that they actually don't have a, a medium term lifespan. What would you say to that idea that you should be looking about next year as well as this? Great. OK. And, you know, absolutely in that strategic sense, we all want to look at the, the c- career progression. But ultimately, to me, the question that we haven't asked yet is why is it that the talent, as they call them in RT, are all on contracts? I know you get an answer as to why mm. that's the case, but all of the leading presenters and talent in RT, as I understand it, are mm. all on contracts. They're not employees. Mm. And it means it allows them to have these little companies and they can go off and do extra things mm. and they can write books and they can open launch cars yeah. and launch books and everything else. But it, mean, so, it means if the public tide turns after three years and you decide that somebody is now yesterday's man and you're not wanted on air anymore, it means that RTE can let them go without having them on the hook but, for but actually, their projects actually, in the future. The, the, the problem, I think, ultimately is, and you've just highlighted it, is, and I've, I've no doubt when Dee Forbes and into RTE, she wanted to reform the place, OK? My understanding is the ability to fire anybody in RTE is zero. The ability to actually reconstitute a... a to, to reconstitute a contract or a job description is next to near impossible. And my understanding is that culturally, mm. and again, I'm a huge fan of the role of unions, but my understanding is that there are rules and regulations in place that make it impossible for people to make those changes. And I think we all know, well, sorry, my understanding is from the outside looking in, there's lots of that stuff that has gone on and 
unless Kevin Backhurst gets the support from the minister and the government yeah. and the board to really make real change, okay, mm. we'll be back at this again in 12 months' time. I suspect that that's actually, in fact, what Kevin Backhurst was doing when he went into Catherine Martin last Thursday was to win support for the, the access that he may have to wield when he gets in there tomorrow morning. As I said, we are joined on the line by Dr. Roderick Finn, who's the Programme Chair of the BA in Communication Studies at Dublin City University. Um, Roddy, thanks for, for joining us this morning and thank you for taking our call. Um, there's a, a few issues that have already been raised by contributors that I want to put to you. But first of all, um, given the, the front page stories that there are today about RTE's funding issues and the idea of there being a prospective need for a bailout coming later this year because of a drop-off in both commercial income and TV licence fees. Um, to your mind, what, what sort of issues does that raise for RTE if it is going to find itself directly having to go cap-in-hand to the government this summer? been going cap in hand uh, to the government um, pretty much for the last 15 years. Um, it hasn't necessarily had that cap filled, if you like. Um, so through the 2010s, um, the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland, the predecessor to the Media Commission, was charged with basically making assessments of how much money RTE actually needed to fulfil its public service remit, and it routinely concluded that it wasn't getting enough from the licence fee, and it routinely recommended to the to minister after minister that the licence fee needed to be increased. And for the most part, the answer to that was, well, the licence fee wasn't increased. Um, what you did get very belatedly from Richard Bruton were kind of top-ups of, you know, 10 million uh, in one year, and I think 15 million last year. But even those sums were far below what have been recommended um, by the BAI. So, um, you know, that, that and that situation is not getting any better. If you look over the last four years, RTE has accumulated losses of about 10 million euro. Mm. It did, it had a profit in the previous year, but it did that purely on the back of selling off the land for about 100 million um, on its uh, Donningbrook campus, the 7.5 acres. Mm. Um, so you know, the fact that a lot of events didn't occur in 2020 that would have been budgeted for. So when COVID is there and effectively you don't have a lot of outside extra large programming that it does always cut back your overheads for that year as well. That's certainly a factor too, although commercial revenues also dropped off as a consequence of just the decline in, um, I mean, that's true for all kind of commercial mm. broadcasters. Um, so it wasn't just, I mean, it's just true for Newstalk. Do, do you think that, um, there, is, that it, there is a future, uh, g- given everything that's been going on, and there are now questions being raised about how much uh, RT's reliance on commercial advertising mm. is needed to keep the lights on, but given the negative attention that's been brought to the likes of barter accounts and some of the commercial arrangements and the fact that they sometimes feel they have to pay top dollar for, for top broadcasters, is there a, a serious question now as to whether RTE can continue with this dual idea and whether it might need to just bite the bullet and cut its cloth a little bit more and survive on, on public funding alone? I mean, there's certainly a serious question. I mean, one of the, I've been listening, obviously, to all the kind of commentary of the last couple of weeks, and I've been listening to the kind of political kind of perspectives on this, and the, I mean, the, the political class, you like, perspectives mm. on this, and there's a remarkable, to me at least, reluctance to engage with the idea that RTE's, you know, commercial funding might be something that it, it, it'll be weaned off. Um, I keep hearing, and I listened to Pat Rabbit yesterday, I heard Michael McGrath during the week, kind of these arguments about um, RTE's function not being incompatible with um, commercial funding. Well, I mean, like philosophically speaking, I think it probably is um, in- incompatible, um, first off. But secondly, the commercial funding thing, even if this whole, you know, the backlog of the last um, four weeks, three weeks uh, at this stage hadn't happened, was always going to be a problem. I mean, RTE has lost 100 million euro in revenue, in, the la- in commercial revenue in the last um, 15 years since the 2008 financial crash. And that's not just because of the 2008 financial crash, uh, although that's a factor. 
Um, it's not because RTE is sort of spectacularly sort of screwing up, you know, with its audiences. It's because of the nature of the advertising market, which is the bulk of where the commercial income comes from, has fundamentally been altered by the arrival of social media platforms and so online platforms. In, in that light, so, then, it w- would now almost be the worst time for the government to long finger the question of, of funding reform. I know Leo Varadkar says that he wants to get it done this side of an election. He doesn't want to park it until whoever mm-hmm. else is the next government. And you, you could arguably uh, laud him for, for not wanting to long finger it. But the idea of the government even posing a discussion until after the present reviews. Well, if RTE is, is you know, actively going looking for 35 million quid in extra funding this year because it might struggle to keep the lights on, surely now yeah. is the right time more than ever to try and tackle this one. Well, well look, that was, that was exactly my response when I heard um, the Taoiseach's um, statement. I just thought, literally the worst time to do this. Um, if we're like this is the time when it, like perhaps never more or, or never previously in RTE's history since it was constituted by the 1960 Broadcasting Act as a commercial broadcaster or rather sorry a semi-commercial broadcaster mm. um, this is the, this this moment is the time to do that more than any other precisely because for, for, I mean for all sorts of reasons one all of this grows out of its dual identity as a commercial broadcast. Like the the, the funding issues, the kind of the the, the the more dubious practices, do not relate to its public service funding and its public service mission. Right? It's all to do with the commercial side of it. And I would include in that the the payment of Ryan Tuberty, um, who you know kind of represents, I would argue, the commercial side of RTE's output, not the kind of the more kind of public service side of it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, is the short answer to that question. <laughs> well, now, like now, is the time to kind of to get very, very serious about about that idea. And I mean, what makes this a little bit awkward is that we spent a lot of time and money uh, on. Well, I spent a lot of time, certainly, on the the work, uh, you know, the very diligently done work of the Future Media Commission last year. But the questions that are being thrown up right now are not questions that that commission really looked at because they weren't asked to look at. You know, they well, that, that commission did recommend the continuance of this dual function, this dual funding model, and. Now, only barely 24 months on, there's serious questions as to whether that can be a long-term solution. Uh, Roddy, before I let you go, one other question just about the the perception of RTE and, and the public faith that any public service broadcaster needs to have and able to, to do its job effectively and for it to really have a level of public trust. Mm-hmm. Is there a danger that irrespective of whatever funding you put in place or whether it still retains its jewel or whether it goes fully public only, that just the, the, the barrage now, we're into the third week and there could prospectively be a fourth week of, of new information coming out that portrays RTE in a very damaging light. Is there a danger that when push comes to shove, no matter how much funding is reformed, that RTE could lose the dressing room, if you like, forevermore? Yeah, I mean, I suppose there's two issues here. At one level, um, whilst I think RTE journalism has actually probably come out of this with its reputation enhanced because they have been as tough as anyone else in asking questions of their senior management, there's no question that the larger institution is damaged by this and how you come back from that is not immediately clear. And I, for myself, I cannot imagine what it is Kevin Backhurst will be able to say tomorrow that will sort of suddenly make everything okay again. But a second point might be, look, um, the point maybe isn't about, the point is not to defend RTE as an institution. The point is to defend public service media. And public service media and RTE are not necessarily synonymous. It is possible. News Talk, for example, um, draws funding from the Sound and Vision Fund, which is there to support public service um, content production. You can have public service media without necessarily the institution of RTE. And that sounds wild because it has been there since pretty much the foundation of the state in one way, shape or form. But, I mean, defending the institution of RTE is, for me, not as important as the idea of defending a public information and communication space, which 
it's, you know, facilitates not just the operation of kind of a healthy democracy, but kind of the much wider kind of social, cultural and, you know, sort of yeah. civic role that public service broadcasting should do. Mm. Uh, Roddy Flynn, thank you for your time this morning. Really good to get your insight on that. Dr. Roderick Flynn is Programme Chair of the BA in Communication Studies at Dublin City University. Uh, listening to him were uh, Adrian Sweeney and John Cunningham. Uh, Adrian, I want to come back to, to one point that um, John just made a moment ago about this idea of um, ending the kind of arm's length relationship that RT has where a lot of its top talent are, are considered as contractors and we, we touched on one of the reasons why that might be good because it means that you're expendable and if the public go off you you're not then required to stay in the books and find other work for them forevermore if there is a push now to try and get all of RTE's top talent as formal members of the payroll and not this arm's length thing so many of them so visibly have other irons in the fire that they rightfully and are fully entitled to draw income from would an RTE find itself with the very unpopular thing of having to effectively buy them out of all of their private contracts if you wanted to to put them on the public payroll. Let's take one hypothetical example. Darren Garrahy uh, very visibly has a lot of other irons in the fire, private podcast shows, other sponsorships, endorsements that she does online. If RTE wanted to make her a full-time employee, hypothetically, wouldn't she rightfully say, well, here's what I command from all my other work, so you're going to have to buy me out of it, which is probably something RTE wouldn't really be wild about doing. Well, I suppose they couldn't do it because if there's going to be caps, um, potential caps mm. on salaries as well, they won't actually be able to make up that shortfall. So, I mean, I think Roddy really got to the heart of the problem in this whole thing that we, and we spoke about this earlier, that we really need to look at this from a blank page perspective and an aerial view. And... Um, in terms of the presenters, though, I mean, Wartie and a lot of people have said this as well. They've created their own problem in terms of building up the profile of these um, talents and the presenters, etc., and putting them across so many different shows. The you know with Ryan Tuberty, yeah. the Late Late, and the radio show. I mean, most of them do have um, several shows to present and have for a very long time. But um, yeah, I mean. You know, even when you look at the late, late, not, no one was really chomping at the heels of Ryan Tuberty in terms of wanting to take over the role as well. Mm. There's there's a limited pool, so to speak, because yeah. not a lot of people get the opportunity to cut their teeth in the industry um, to be able to come up to that level of yeah. um, being competition for the top level presenters. So it's created this huge issue that if if RTE needs to renegotiate um, new contracts with these presenters and putting them on the payroll, there's not a lot of, they, they may have to pay up because there's not a lot of other people that will come in to take the role. Mm. Uh, a tweet in from Eamon who wonders why everyone is expecting Kevin Backhurst to be able to clean up RTE. He is former RTE management and he's not the new broom that everyone is saying he is. This is Ireland and our answer to every scandal is damage control, not damage repair, says Eamon. John, your thoughts? Well, I suppose I made the comment earlier on. I think the fact we're talking the day before the man starts his job about what he's going to do to fix it tomorrow, I think, is a little bit premature. You don't uh, think the fact that he's, he's effectively been kind okay. of doing the job freelance for the last week or two anyway is a sign uh, well, that I, he's, I would have thought, he's uh, not going in there listen, with a standing start no, on day listen, one? Listen, as I understand it, Kevin Backhurst is a very competent professional guy. He's got great experience. And I suspect in some respects, his knowledge of RT may be helpful in this context. And he may be, have been given the best job in the world in broadcasting on the basis that it feels like everything's back on the table and if he gets the support from the minister with regard to things like contracts and firing people and restructuring yeah. it may be the best job in the world what I'd be saying to everybody is just cool your jets would you give the man a little while to kind of unpack his pencil case <laughs> and get his head around the issues and you know, see how things go because this is going to be a root and branch review and I think the question we've asked is the issue of governance what is RTE what's its intent the public service broadcasting piece compared to the, the commercial piece it is a challenge. We had the, the commission previously come up and say 
Yeah, you know, yeah, it needs to be a bit of both, and that, that's worth reflecting on. That was only in the last couple of years, and it said you can't get by BBC style license fee alone. There and, has to be commercial income and, to supplement. And really bright people participated in that group, and they apparently had really open and frank conversations, and said this is the way it's going to be. But again, the bat- bottom line is governance, 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 without a starting point and a set of rules and a set of of, of, of parameters within which to work, you're going to end up with these problems. And it feels like to me as if that fundamental foundation doesn't exist. And Kevin Backhurst is going to have to build it, create it and get support from the government and all the stakeholders. And it could work though, it could work if the governance is there, as you said, because um, it kind of has to work. Mm. Otherwise, we're looking at completely scaling back RTE as a as a basically a news and current affairs, public service broadcasting, smaller unit. Um, mm. And I think, you know, because the advertising revenues are going to continue to fall as well. You know, they, they don't have the younger audience that they used to have. Um, now there's a lot more choice. And as Roddy said, people are moving to social media and the advertising mm. revenue well, is if following If you have a marketing spend, why, why wouldn't you go to social media where you can target it to a certain bit rather than just broadcasting to everyone that's a recipient of RTE1 or Radio 1? Or comparatively on News Talk or Virgin yeah, Media, that there's people there's a under thirty. There. People under thirty are not engaged with RTE. Full stop. So but they're obliged story, to pay that the yeah. and, and, and that yeah. needs to be again part of that really competent, mm. open conversation. Uh, Kevin Backhurst uh, will, I understand, be making some kind of a public address or dealing with with media to some degree tomorrow. Obviously, he was in with the minister on Thursday. The minister said that he had to make some sort of short order address to RTE's audience, i.e., the public. Uh, he has plans to reconstitute RTE's uh, top brass, the executive board. And when you say reconstitute. That presumably means more than just like disbanding a committee and then reassembling committee with the same people in the same roles. It's going to mean some changes of personnel. So we will see what he has to say, as I understand it, uh, when he is going to address the public and RT's audience uh, tomorrow afternoon. We'll park that there, though, for now. There is plenty more uh, away from Montrose to discuss uh, in the papers with John and Adrian when we're back after this. Um, <laughs> there's a fascinating story on page five of the Sunday Independent. Um, and I, I said we were, we were going to move away from, from uh, RT issues. This isn't an RT issue, but it is a kind of a televisual uh, issue because it seems that the, the, the new star of the soon-to-be-premiered uh, Flying the Wall documentary, or at least one that's being made right now, Adrian, is Eamon Ryan. Tell us more. Okay, so Eamon, filming is due to start this weekend of a new fly in the wall documentary featuring Eamon Ryan and his staff and it'll be shot on handheld cameras. It's a documentary independently made um, and it'll follow him and his staff around um, and it's due to be aired in uh, to cinema audiences uh, next in 2025. Eamon Ryan movie star. An Eamon Ryan movie so, star. Uh, so the intention there is, is to document him as he goes about his work as... Green Party leader and Minister for um, Communications, yeah. Environment, Energy, Transport. It's it's a bit of an experiment, I suppose, on their behalf. Um, now, it wasn't the Green Party's idea, apparently, um, uh, but producers came to them with the idea and asked, could they um, use them as the subject for a documentary, Flying the Wall documentary, which they've agreed to. And so, in some ways, it's an interesting experiment in terms of getting your party message out to the public mm. and the public that you might not normally reach through normal channels. I mean, again, a little bit like RTE, young people aren't really engaged in politics in the same manner as as maybe they maybe did in the, the traditional past. sense as they yeah. were in the past. So yeah. having, you know, handheld video clips um, that can be featured on social media, etc., um, is probably a new a new route for mm. politics to go down. I, I imagine, though, John, if this is, or if the Green, as you say, the Green Party has not conceived of this idea, but if the Green Party is going along with it and Damon Ryan has consented to being filmed in this fly in the wall way, if there are people within the Greens who think that this is a, a, a knowing vanity project but it's going to portray Eamon Ryan in a good light if it's not due until for cinema release until 2025 
that's going to be after a general election. So it's not going to move the dial and suddenly portray him in a heroic light that's going to save his skin whenever the public have to vote again. Well, the first thing is, why didn't the Green Party conceive of this idea? The first you think question. it's a good idea? I, for two reasons. One, I think in general, we all have a huge commitment to the Green agenda. The Greens have gone into government as a third party. Mm. And as far as I'm concerned, they've got a bit lost. And if they can... You mean green, green agenda with a lowercase g? Yes. Yes, OK. So to me, this is an idea, seems like a, like a really good thing to do. I'm very lucky. I get to work with Roderick O'Gorman in my role in Gashka and with Catherine Martin and Emma. And they're two, as far as I'm concerned, really strong Green ministers. All right. So if the Green Party, because I mean, at the moment, I think as the, as the election is coming to us, OK, the talk is again that the Greens will end up being obliterated in the next election. So first of all, the 2025 piece is a bit distressing. You kind of think, you know, maybe a little too late. <laughs> you want to rush it out for a Christmas little, release. <laughs> but certainly from my perspective, and even if this conversation helps people realise, the Greens have absolutely influenced the agenda in the current government. Mm. Now, whether they've maybe been, not so much the delivery. No, and maybe they haven't influenced all the right things. I mean, I have to tell you, as you as I as I drive out to to Sea Point for a swim, and they've taken away another bus bus lane to put in a cycle path. You kind of think, dear God, will this be the only legacy they've got? But if they could have taken away a bus lane to put in, they a have taken path. away a bus lane. This is off our agenda now, but they, they they've removed. So the bus is a lane. the bus lane now has been moved into the road where the cars are. Oh, okay, no, the so, so there is still a lane for buses. No, just, no, no, no. The bus lane, the bus now shares the like the, shares the, the older lane days. Buses, like shares the, the lane older days, the bikes. Shares the road. So the bike has the lane. Right. So okay, right. I just think that if they can find a way of engaging with society hmm. to promote the green agenda, that's a great thing. Now. I'm hoping that they're talking about this being in Synod of 2025. I suspect it'll appear somewhere before yeah. that, OK? But from my perspective, anything the Greens can do mm. to support their agenda, I think, is a good thing. The biggest fear that they, I think they all have as a, as a third member of a coalition is that by the time the next election comes, as happens inevitably, they end up being left behind. So I'd say... Go for it, Eamon. Uh, if you have a prospective name for a documentary, uh, a fly-in-the-wall documentary about the work of Eamon Ryan, please do let us know. Uh, 87 106 I mean, already we're going to be flooded with it's not easy being green, puns, <laughs> Kermit the Frog, seeing yeah. the title sequence. Like, no, like we'll just take that as red. Um, but any other ideas for what you'd like to call Eamon Ryan's fly-in-the-wall documentary, please do let us know. 87 Um There's a couple of pieces about health in the papers and this is worth kind of reflecting on because sometimes... We find ourselves talking about trolley crises and the likes, Adrian, in winter months. And of course, we're going to talk about it when it's a crisis that's naturally occurring. You don't often talk about it with the same vigour when the crisis is, is not happening. You, you don't talk about the storms on, on a nice day. But there's a couple of interesting pieces, including a full deep dive into why the HSE's winter plan doesn't seem to work. And a really fascinating piece today in the Sunday Independent about that. Yeah, there's um, a report that was seen by the Sunday Independence, Wayne O'Connor, and um, it basically has outlined why the HSE's own winter plan didn't work. And basically, you boil it down to this. They had the money there, but they couldn't actually hire the staff to fix the problem. And so, you know, it really kind of comes down to uh, as we said earlier, the attraction and retention of staff in the mm. in the HSE. So, you know, one of the issues that the report outlined as well is that the plans were often implemented a little bit too late and they were too reactive and only employed during specific periods of high focus and attention during the annual trolley crisis. So um, there was 169 million euro allocated, but 90 million of that wasn't spent because they couldn't hire staff. So that's a massive problem. And mm. I suppose it that basically is the core problem the HSE has is that it's you know, there's a lot of money in the pot but it's possibly being misspent in some mm. areas but also they just can't attract new 
uh, nurses and doctors into the system. Uh, at risk of kicking up more skeletons of our part one topic about what's going on in Donnybrook, you were pointing out, John, during the ad break that actually there's a lot of comparisons between some of the institutional issues in, in both RTE and the HSE. What struck me just today again when you step back from it is some of the brightest people in the country have worked in the HSE at all levels. And why between all of them have not been able to resolve the issues? So if D4 was wanted to fix RTE and couldn't fire people and couldn't rewrite couldn't, couldn't rewrite contracts mm. with else, okay? Implying she wanted to, of course. Implying yeah. that she wanted to. Mm. You have to ask this question of governance again. There's one thing the HSE seems to have plenty of, that's money. money. My understanding, I, I can't remember the figure, but it's 20 Tw- billion. 22 billion. 22 billion. billion. It's the biggest expenditure in the whole of the government. So there's no shortage of money. So there's something wrong strategically. And back to this governance issue, and this is where, again, the departments and the minister, the, the Department of Teaching needs to intervene here and understand what is the problem and what do they need to do to fix it? It is not beyond the wit of the bright and brilliant people that exist within the structure, in academia and in the world to find a solution. It is exhausting to think we're here now talking in the summer about the preparation for what we already know or assume is going to be a failed winter plan, right? Last year, they're kind of saying, sorry, it caught up with us, OK? Mm. Attraction well, last, last year the, the winter surge kicked off in by like, middle of summer towards autumn and even yeah. that was a post-COVID environment too. And then you realise that they had the statistics showing that it was going to happen such trouble and we haven't got the time to deal with it. So there's something about governance going on at the moment in the air that just needs to be considered and understood. Again, we are so lucky whether it's in the HSC or there's some brilliant people devoting their lives to their careers mm. in delivering brilliant services, okay? And somewhere along the line there's a breakdown with regard to authority and responsibility and governance and strategy. All the fundamental basics of running any business. We call them businesses Mm. because that's what they are. So at this stage now, it is not beyond the wit of the people in our government and in the Dáil and the Shannad to come up with a solution. So, but if there hasn't been a solution to those kind of uh, governance issues, well, the HSE has existed for 20 years and those governance issues always seem to have been there. I don't think anyone could probably remember a time when the likes of RTE were able to just decide, oh, this administrator is uh, too big for their boots or has, has landed themselves a job that they can't perform out with them. It's, it's not a culture we have in Ireland uh, of disposing of people when it turns out that they're just incapable of the jobs that they have. So if, if it isn't beyond the wit of the daughter, whoever else, it's never been done up till now. But no, no. But but let me tell you, in the private sector, where I exist, it is the way you run your business. You have people employed. If they underperform, you've got processes in place to go through a disciplinary process. And if the end result is that they are removed from the job, they have the power to do that. Okay. I mean, one of the issues we discussed earlier on, myself and Adrian, in in, in just preparing for today, is that you know, what sort of measures do they have with regard to performance? What sort of monthly, quarterly, and annual measures do they have to say, Gavin, how are you performing against your goals? Mm. How are you performing against what you committed to deliver? Mm. And if you don't have what those your, performance... What are your KPIs? Yeah, yeah, but, sector, but, yeah. And we can call them KPIs or anything else, but at a very basic level, if you're Sorry, paid... Sorry, that's key performance indicators for people who key, aren't raised Key performance kind of indicators, jargon. where would you be without them? But the point is, if you don't have measurable and actual, ac- actionable outputs from your work, it can't be measured and nobody knows what you're doing. I'm here anecdotally of people in RT who have over 100,000 year salaries and if you ask them what their job is, they say, I'm not too sure. OK, so the bottom line is there's something oh, fundamentally wrong. We won't go back to the, the, no, the But again, back to the, the HSE, please put bright people with the authority and the responsibility to find out what's the problem. Is it governance? Is it strategy? What is it? Because it is not beyond us all to try and fix it. I think, you know, the general um, consensus usually is if you get a job within the public service, it's a job for life. Mm. 
you know, that's that's what everybody um, mm. says and accepts. But perhaps that culture needs to change, as John said, and that you are answerable um, for your output in terms of your role and yeah. that um, promotion isn't automatic, which it can be in um, certain areas of, and it is in the HSE as well. Um, now, I'm not too... But you, you get promoted merely through longevity. Longevity, yeah, yeah. And you move up through the bands. Um, so perhaps that culture needs to change. And if that, um, if, if that did change, and uh, more governance was put in place well, in that respect. Do, we, we all operate under the same employment yeah. law. Well, do, do you think that, do either of you think that there's anyone or any party or anybody in Irish public life who would actually be able to take uh, enough of a scalpel to that current idea of public sector jobs for life and actually having people Of course they could, but the answer is there's nobody going to stand up and start that conversation. But in saying that... there's 350,000 people on the public yeah, but, payroll. But, but in saying that, in saying there. that, we're now at a stage when you look at these crises that are going on and on and on. It may require somebody at the end of their political career who might be planning to go to Europe or somewhere else to say, now is the chance for the next eight months to actually just sort this out. So you're, it's oh, not beyond the wit. You're almost writing my segue for me because of page 15 of the Mail on Sunday. It's almost like you deliberately planned this. Um, Ireland's favourite political parlour game is already kicking off. The European elections aren't for another 11 months and that usually then kicks off a little bit of a reshuffle. Um, but page 15 of the Mail on Sunday has got there already. There is strong speculation in Dublin and Brussels this weekend that Micheál Martin is being lined up to replace Ursula von der Leyen as the President of the European Commission. Um, basically, the long story short, um, Ursula von der Leyen it now looks like she's the favourite to become the new Secretary General of NATO in about 12 months. That obviously will mean that there's a vacancy uh, at the European Commission. She wouldn't be looking for a second term. And that means that the big job is open. Uh, Ireland's commissionership is Fianna Falls to a point, And then everyone goes, ah, bingo. Michal Martin for the top job in Brussels. It's like a national pastime of trying to figure out where our lads are going to end up in big jobs in Brussels, isn't it? Well, you know, there's no space for, for him and for Pascal Donoghue and for Mairead McGuinness to have all these big but, jobs. But, but let me be very clear and let's start off. When we in Ireland end up with Irish people in these central global roles, it's good for Ireland, it's good for the country and it's a really, really important part of our presence in the world. Now, my he can't have them all. He can't have the presidency of the Eurogroup no, and the Council and the Commission. Yeah, no, no, but again, aren't we so lucky to have... I mean, you know what's really interesting is the fact that obviously, as I understand it, Pascal Donoghue has been a brilliant minister in all of his posts, could have any job in Europe that he wants and maybe in the world in the finance world. So we're very lucky to have people of that calibre. Michal Mart, my understanding is that Ursula van der Leyen will certainly be offered a second term in Europe. Okay. And it may be that she doesn't take NATO because I have to tell you, you know, at this stage, like, there's a woman, I think she's seven children, OK, mm. and she's got a life, OK. The NATO thing mm. in the current environment is probably one of the, the toughest jobs she in the world. She has to find somewhere to live because as, as I understand it right now, she literally lives in the European Commission headquarters. Like she never, never found an apartment for herself. That She basically had the Brussels job thrust upon her. She was born and raised there. She's got some family links there. But she was Germany's defence minister and they said, right, we need somebody to take the job. She was a name plucked out of somebody's pocket at the 11th hour. She literally lives in the building. So she'd have to go and yeah. find herself somewhere else to live if she was working elsewhere in Brussels. Well, you know, and that maybe I, I suspect, is not beyond her. But <laughs> I think, again, that what's really important from my perspective is that for the first time in our generation, we have somebody in Europe that looks like a leader who makes hard decisions and has become that touchstone in a global context where people, that famous thing, who do you call when you want to call Europe? You call Ursula, OK? And I think she's going to be offered a second term. So I would think that we better not get too overexcited yet about 
Michal mm. going to Europe because I think it's going to be potentially a bit of a, an egg and spoon race before we get there. I don't know, any thoughts, Adrian, that you want to contribute to parlour games of, of who gets all the big jobs? I was hearing from, from people who have media links in London that actually they all reckon that a first love underline is going to NATO that Leo Varadkar gets the job irrespective of the fact that it's actually Fianna Fáil's to fill and I don't think that Michal Martin will be tripping over himself to give a big Brussels bauble to Leo Varadkar. Yeah, I think, look, they're, they're, I mean, most um, competent politicians will end up with some role in, mm. in Europe at the end of their career in, in Ireland as well. So, um, I mean, look, if he gets it, I think he'd be a great candidate um, uh, for the role mm. and uh, I think he'll, as John said, do Ireland proud mm. on the uh, European stage. There is that interesting question though, does he want to lead Fianna Fáil into the next election and would it be a useful way to just take him off the picture and just get someone else leading Fianna Fáil into an election if Michal took a big Brussels promotion at this side of a general election? Uh, let me know your thoughts 87 106 for your WhatsApps back with more from the papers uh, with John and Adrian after this. Adrian, um, I don't know whether you are um, would fall as much of a financial victim as I would to the idea of a latte levy, the idea of there being a, a price for the use of a single a single use coffee cup. Yeah. Uh, basically, I would be bankrupted by it because I'm my bloodstream is mostly caffeine at this point, uh, as anyone who's ever seen my Instagram on a Sunday morning will know uh, when I'm here in news talk. Um, but there's an interesting uh, argument on, on page 32 of the Mail on Sunday today about how the latte levy, far from being a plan to try and eliminate the use of uh, single use uh, coffee cups like that, it apparently shows how detached the government is from the real world. Tell us more. Well, I mean, I definitely do fall victim to that because I tried to give up caffeine a few months ago and got the awful, awful. I couldn't function for about a week, so I had to take it back up again. So I will be um, out of pocket with this levy when it comes in as well. This is an interesting report because it's actually commissioned by the Irish Paper Packaging Circulatory Alliance. So. So that sounds like it has vested interest. Uh, there's a vested anyway. interest okay. at the back of this. So we have to just be aware of that when we're reading this article um, and saying that the government is detached from reality on that front. Basically, the thrust of the argument mm. in this report is saying that the levy, which will put an extra 20 cents um, on the consumer because mm. it will be passed on by coffee shop owners to the consumer, um, is that this, this report and coffee shop owners attached to it are arguing that it actually actually it will end up worse for the environment because um, we're going to spend more in terms of washing uh, <laughs> reusable cups and the energy costs associated with that um, the, by 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 uh, eliminating or reducing the use of uh, paper cups. So they reckon that the the disposable drinks cups account for about fourteen thousand tons of non-household waste a year that they re- they reckon that it's almost three quarters of a billion cups get thrown away on an annual basis I, I must only be responsible hand on heart for about 60% of that I mean I can't <laughs> carry the can uh, for all of that but you would think if if they if there's three quarters of a billion cups a year and, and so the contention there John seems to be that you would you would do more damage you'd have to use 20 cent worth of energy and water cleaning a reusable cup and that ultimately it's a false economy then as opposed to like it doesn't seem like you'd use 20 cent of energy well, to wash a cup. Okay, well, look, I, I'm kind of losing the will to live in this conversation, all right? It goes back to this point again about where is the conversation taking place strategically about all these important things? I'm all for Well, we'll, we'll find cups. out when Eamon yeah. Ryan's documentary comes well, out. Eamon Ryan's documentary comes out in 2025 when we've all retired. But <laughs> the point is that if this was part of an overall sense of a strategic connected plan, I mean, you watch those programmes with regard to plastic in the world. We, it just needs to stop, OK? But if it all felt like it was part of a plan. But this has been going on for what well, feels like forever, this discussion about the cups. OK, mm. so tell me what you're doing. 
Tell me why you're doing it and tell me what the real impact is going to be. If I thought by paying 20%, 20 cent more was going to solve the problem, I'd say, do you know what? I'm on for that. But I don't believe it will. And then to have another kind of conversation come out about, you know, using the water and washing the cup and saying, spare me the trauma. The, the report, uh, a prior study says that reusable cups generate 2.8 times more carbon dioxide and consume 3.4 times more fresh water compared to single-use paper-based alternatives. So that's basically the thrust of the argument associated to this. But, I mean, at the end of the that's, day... That's in manufacture, though. So that's, that's to, to make it one-off. But if you reuse the cup three or four times, then... And then you have to wash oh. it and, and <laughs> well, etc. And yeah. the labour cost associated with that as well. So, um, I mean, look, you know, change, nobody likes change, obviously. And mm. uh, the consumer doesn't like change in the pocket as well. We will end up paying more for it. But a little bit like the plastic bag levy, we just accepted it and moved on and we've adapted since. But there's a brilliant example of brave policy decisions whether it's the smoking ban or the plastic bag ban if something's important enough to step up and make it happen it's worth doing and this just feels like kind of a and the fact that they're still arguing about it feels like it's incomplete it hasn't been thought, thought through fully and there's nobody coming out fighting for it it's kind of now kind of gone into the the, the the re-debate so I'm just thinking to myself now at this stage look somebody own it and sort it uh, Joe says on Twitter that it should be a separate charge at the till. Do you have your own cup? Oh, that's uh, 20 cents less. Like the plastic bags. If it's just part of the price, nobody will even know. Well, I, I think I that's pres- a fair point. I presume that's the, the theory, though, that like if you if you bring in your own keep cup, that they'll go, all right, well, that's fine then. We'll charge you the, the face price. But if you need to get your little paper one from us as well with the microfilm of plastic around it, that it's an extra 20 cents. I mean, it wouldn't in, work any other way. In an ideal uh, scenario, yes, that would be the case and it should be the case for the consumer. But according to the coffee shop owner's uh, outlined in this article mm. they say they're just going to pass on the 20 cent charge to the consumer yeah, and, and up the price of the coffee cup by that <laughs> amount so I've, I've, potentially my, my kids are going to be out of house and home I don't think it'll stop a lot of people buying the cup of coffee although it'll tip it over in, in some fancy coffees the 5 euro mark yeah. oh, <laughs> yikes um, we, we don't have time to get through everything that I do want to get through so I want to give uh, Adrian a chance to go and look at page 15 of the Sunday Independent for the last story we're going to come to in a minute uh, there's been a, a, a tweet from Caroline uh, who comes back to a point that you were making earlier, John. The common theme across RTE and the HSE is the lack of strategic and commercially focused HR and cultural transformation. HR is key and no one is mentioning it. Yes, this person says she's biased. I presume she works in HR, uh, but she believes it's still true nonetheless. And do you know what? Post-COVID, anybody who's worked in industry or business knows that the biggest conversations about values, culture, mission statements and creating an environment where you could be bring your best self to work and we get the best from you in attracting and retaining talent. And during COVID, I think there's lots of babies were thrown out of bathwater with regard to that staffing issue. And in my role in Morgan McKinley as the leading recruitment Mm. business in Ireland, there's absolutely a sense now that it's never been more important, that issue of culture and values. And people looking for work are making those assessments of organisations. So if you've missed, if you've dropped the ball on culture and values, you are going to see yourself out of the market. And back to that point about attracting and retaining talent in the HSE, mm. there's a prime example. You talk to anybody in the HSE, whether it's nurses or junior doctors, and they talk about their 40 hour days and the fact yeah. that they don't get to, that's the values, mm. that's the culture. And that means that if you had a choice to go there or somewhere else, you're going somewhere else. Never a true word spoken. There is about 20 seconds left. So Adrian, finally, your crash course into what must be the most Irish story ever on page 15 of the Sindo, because it entails the GAA and sheep. 
Yeah. What's going on? This is the biggest controversy of them all today. Uh, so basically the GAA crest, Roscommon crest versus the county Roscommon crest features the wrong sheep. And so now we have an investigation launched into how and and how we're going to change the breed of sheep on the GAA crest across the board. Uh, Grant Thornton reports and on uh, Iraqis <laughs> inquiries. Why is there a sheep on the GAA crest in Roscommon that has a black face when Roscommon's native breeds of sheep all have white faces. Uh, get your thoughts to 087 Adrian Sweeney, Director of Paris Court Springs Health Farm and Newsreader here at News Talk. Uh, and John Cunningham, who's Relationship Director with Morgan McKinley and Chairman and Country Director for the Lysis Group. Thank you both very much uh, for joining me in studio. On the Record with Gavin Riley, Sunday morning at 11. Brought to you by PwC. Great minds think unalike. Different skill sets, diverse opinions, it all adds up to the new equation. On News Talk.